In 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and the first part of chapter 2, we saw that when leading people to salvation, Paul did not rely on human wisdom, but rather on the wisdom of God that was based on the foolishness of the cross. We now pick up in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 6, where Paul notes this. We do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. No, we declare God's wisdom, a mystery that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. What a phrase. A mystery that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. None of the rulers of this age understood it. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. However, as it is written, what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, and what no human mind has conceived, the things God has prepared for those who love him, these are the things God has revealed to us by his Spirit. The Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except their own spirit within them? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. What we have received is not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may understand what God has freely given us. This is what we speak, not in words taught us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the spirit, explaining spiritual realities with spirit-taught words. The person without the spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them foolishness and cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the Spirit. The person with the Spirit makes judgments about all things, but such a person is not subject to merely human judgments. For who has known the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. In chapter 2, verse 4, Paul referred to preaching with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. Now he's describing more about the ministry of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, the person of God himself, who of course knows the thoughts of God and reveals those truths to us, he's involved, as this word, as this passage is saying, in making the things of God known to us, visible to us. Why? So that we may understand what God has freely given us for life and godliness. So that we can understand what God's plans and purposes are, and most importantly, so that we can live for God. The role of the Holy Spirit is not just to give us a lot more information. It is so that we may live victoriously in this world. Right? So when we think of others, or think of ourselves, or someone else as knowing the things of God, or living according to the truths of God, we think of that as being spiritual. Right? We say things like, she's very spiritual, or I'm not very spiritual. And what we mean by it is some sort of a measure of ourselves and of others, based primarily on what other people think. But what the scriptures are making clear is that 
spiritual or being spiritual is not to be on a higher human plane or to achieve some greater human capacity. I am more spiritual now than I used to be. That's not the point that the scripture is actually making. Spiritual, the word there, is used to refer to everything that pertains to the Holy Spirit. So being more spiritual is not where we come to a higher level of achievement or wisdom or gifting or even fruit, the results. It's not that, oh no, I am more spiritual. But rather, being spiritual would be to understand and appropriate the message of the cross to be saved by the Holy Spirit. Being spiritual would be to desire to be cleansed and set free by the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. Being spiritual would be where we are more and more reliant, dependent on the Holy Spirit, yielding to the Holy Spirit, listening to the Holy Spirit, obeying the Holy Spirit, living daily by the Holy Spirit, and pointing others to the Holy Spirit. So being spiritual is possible for every believer, not just a select few. Though those, that person is very spiritual, I, I just couldn't measure up. That's not the case. Being spiritual is for every believer, not just for those who are holier than you. Because it's not up to you. It's all about the Holy Spirit. That's the emphasis that... Paul is making. That's the emphasis that the word of God is giving. We tend to measure ourselves and rank ourselves based on our thinking. But it's the same Holy Spirit that is available for all of us. We can be just as spiritual as anybody else because it is all about the Holy Spirit. It is ironic though that a passage that is emphasizing our dependence on the Holy Spirit and therefore should be keeping us as humble about ourselves as possible, the same passage has been used by some to claim that they hear from God because they are more spiritual than others. Or that others are not able to see what they see because they lack spiritual discernment. Or no one can question them because they're not subject to mere human judgments. And we have used these passages to justify our own arrogance and our own presumption rather than saying, I, I just preach Christ and Him crucified. I depend on the Holy Spirit. I look to the Holy Spirit for wisdom. It's not about me. It's not about my being something more. It's about my decreasing so that the Holy Spirit can increase. It's about submitting and yielding and abandoning myself to the Lord. It's not about what I am. You see, the revelation of the Holy Spirit is not to glorify us. Regardless of our knowledge and experience, we are all equally reliant on the Holy Spirit to show us the way and to tell us where to take the next step. You don't, we can't at any time in our Christian journey say to the Holy Spirit, Thanks for leading me thus far. I'll take it from here. It doesn't matter how long you've been a Christian. It doesn't matter how short of a time you've been a Christian. You're still reliant on the Holy Spirit to say, this is the way. Walk in it. Take this step. 
This is the step so that you won't stumble. This is the step so that you don't go to the right or to the left. This is the step that you need to follow it. We're still reliant on that. We can't say, oh, no, 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 I've been a holy Christian for 30 years. I'm good. You, you need to listen to the Holy Spirit. Me, I'm good. No. All of us equally are reliant and are dependent on hearing the Holy Spirit to say, next step, no matter what the circumstance. So no matter what, we have to be, we must be always attentive to the voice of the Holy Spirit. We have to hear his voice. We cannot just say, I got it. We have to say the revelation of the Holy Spirit is for us to obey God and through that obedience to glorify God. That's the sole purpose. The revelation of the Holy Spirit is to enable and empower us to apply the word of God. We hear it. Faith comes and faith allows us to hear that word of God. But now we need the power of the Holy Spirit to apply that word. Because the Holy Spirit, or pardon me, the word of God that is given to us is not an easy thing. It is simple, it is straightforward, it gives life, but it is not easy to live out. And so we need the Holy Spirit to say, Lord, help me to live this out. Help me to live this out. Which brings us to this important statement at the end of the chapter. It says, but we have the mind of Christ. That is, in receiving the Holy Spirit, in being saved, in being recognized and adopted as children of God, we receive the mind of Christ. Now, in early April, when we were studying Romans chapter 15, verses 1 through 13, and saw that the culmination of the gospel is a message of hope, I referred to 1 Corinthians 2.16 to say that when we believe and accept that Jesus died on the cross for our sins, that he rose from the tomb victorious over death to give us eternal life, when we believe and accept that one day Christ Jesus will return for us, and when we believe in our hearts and confess with our mouths that Jesus Christ is Lord, not only are we accepted into the family of God, we receive the means to begin thinking according to the mind of Christ. To have the same attitude towards others and accept others just as Christ accepted us. Barriers, prejudices, and differences fade and we begin to share with each other what we have freely received ourselves. When we accept others, we begin to unite with them in glorifying and worshiping God, and hope arises in us individually and collectively. This morning, what I want to do is expand on what that mind of Christ means to us. Having the mind of Christ does not mean that when we become Christians, our natural minds, our thoughts, our will, our intellect, our emotions, our desires, our passions, our fears, our hurts, our discouragements, and everything else that is constantly abuzz in our increasingly hyperactive and easily distracted minds, it doesn't mean that as soon as you become a Christian, all that goes away and replaced by the mind of Christ. We have the mind of Christ doesn't mean that all of a sudden we are thinking only what Christ would think. No. You know, if your expectation was that all your thinking would be instantaneously set right when you accepted the Lord Jesus, you may be saying to yourself, why am I still thinking these thoughts? Why am I still thinking these ways if I'm a Christian? 
Why am I not experiencing the peace of God in my mind? Why am I restless, agitated, prone to fears, and thinking poorly of somebody else? And you can maybe saying, look at, and then fill in whatever name of the person that you think is very spiritual, right? Look at that person. They're so calm. They're speaking only the right things. They seem to be in sync with God. They're a good Christian. Maybe I'm not even a Christian. Why? You've set a wrong expectation. You think that having the mind of Christ means that your mind is not active. Oh, your mind is even more active. Because the devil, the world, and the flesh is always now trying to oppose the truth of God. And your mind is going all over the place. It may not be in direct opposition to the doctrine or the truth of God's word, but it is in direct opposition to the time that you would spend with him, to the commitment that you would make to him, to the ways in which you would surrender and say, he is Lord of my life. Your mind is opposing that. And it finds something else for you to think about, to do, to pursue, other than being committed to the Lord Jesus. So the amazing love for God, of God for us rather, the amazing love that he shows us, is not to just replace our minds, that we would be nothing more than a robot, right? In, all the software is wiped clean, and God puts in his software, his operating system, and we do exactly what he wants. He doesn't do that. The amazing love of God is for us that he takes us out of the miry clay, and out of the rocks, and out of the thorns, and then, and you can just picture an earthly father doing this, maybe your own father, caring for a child who has fallen and is crying and is distressed. Our, our heavenly father takes us and tenderly, gently, God slowly and carefully cleanses us of our sin, washes off all that filth that is on us. He heals our hurts. He soothes us of our distress. And he speaks reassuring, calming words over us. The Bible says, he, in fact, he sings over us. He's the one giving us that lullaby that puts us to sleep in the night and rest in him. But he's doing this tender, gentle, caring action. Why? So that we are progressively changed. So that even as we've seen in Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2 and other scriptures, we know that our daily experience, our minds... They're not being just flipped. They are being transformed. We are changed into the likeness of God. Our minds are renewed daily. And the Lord reveals to us what needs to be affected and what needs to be changed. Carefully revealing wrong thoughts in us. Revealing right thoughts from the word. Speaking calmly and refreshingly, changing us. God is a whole lot more patient with us than we are with each other. Right? He is patiently working in us. He knows what we can handle. He knows what we are capable of. He knows what our strengths and our limits are. And he works and he works and he works as we yield. Can you resist the work of God in you? Yes, you can. Can you make the word of God of no effect? Yes, you can. Can you by your actions thwart the work of the Holy Spirit and grieve the Holy Spirit? Yes, you can. Which is amazing, but you can and so the Lord patiently, gently, lovingly continues to work in us in this way. And say, oh, let me, 
Let me. Let me do this in your heart. Let me do this in your life. Let me do this in your circumstances. And some things may have been there for a short time, and you're saying, oh, so glad it's gone. And some things may have been there for years, decades. And you're like, oh, God, how will I be rid of this? Let, just, can you just get rid of this? Can you just take this out? And you know, it may not be so quick because he knows what we need to go through, how we need to die to that, how we need to be changed and transformed. See, having the mind of Christ is not where we lose our minds, uh, literally or figuratively. It's not where we lose our minds, but rather where we can be led by the Holy Spirit to know how Jesus is thinking of something. So we have our minds here, but we're coming into accord, we're coming into alignment, we're coming into agreement with the mind of Christ that is also there. And we're saying, Lord God, I want to understand. Holy Spirit, help me to understand what is Jesus thinking about in this circumstance, of this person, of this situation, of this challenge, of this victory. What is Jesus thinking about of this? Now, the thoughts of God are infinite. I'm not suggesting to you that we can think like God. That's not what I'm saying. But we can look at every situation and ask the Holy Spirit to reveal how God is thinking about it. What are your thoughts, Lord, about this? You see, that was what the Holy Spirit intended for us to ask. There was a slogan that originated in the 1900s but became more popular in the 1990s, and that was, what would Jesus do? It was abbreviated primarily on bracelets and also on mugs and hats and all sorts of stuff as WWJD. It's still around. You can order all sorts of WWJD bracelets and other items online. But the question for us now is not only what would Jesus do, but also even more importantly, what would Jesus think? WWJT. So before getting to some practical steps so that we may be of the same mind with each other, I want to highlight three things that Jesus thought about. Jesus had many things that he was, that were on his mind. But these are some predominant thoughts. Three things that inform us and help us to say, I want to think like Jesus. First thing is that Jesus thought about the cross. In Luke chapter 9, verse 44, even as Jesus was performing mighty miracles, attracting large crowds, and at the peak of his earthly ministry, he said to the disciples, listen carefully to what I'm about to tell you. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. And a few verses later, in verse 51, Luke is recounting this. He says, as the time approached for him, for Jesus, to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Some translations actually say he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. What was in Jerusalem? Jesus knew that in Jerusalem he would be delivered into the hands of those who would crucify him. He knew that it was the cross that was awaiting him in Jerusalem. He knew that the sins of the whole world would be laid upon him in that cross. And yet, he was resolute. He was determined to go because he knew that the plan of God established even before the creation of the world, even before time began is what we read. He knew that that plan 
that had it in it for him to return, to come to the earth, to be incarnated as a man, but then to return to heaven, that plan was in the way of the cross. The path there, the journey there, the return to heaven went through the cross. There was no way to avoid it. And so he was resolute. He was determined to go that way. When we are called by God as his dearly beloved children and his purposes and his plans are at work in our lives and we eagerly, rightfully look forward to being joined with him for eternity, we must remember that our being taken up to heaven is by way of the cross. You can't get to heaven without having gone through the cross. Both the fact that you would come to the cross of Christ and receive what he has done and that you would take up your cross daily and follow him. There is a slow, often excruciatingly painful process of dying to self that lies in between receiving Christ and ultimately being joined with Christ for eternity. In between that process, or in between those two points, there's a process of going through the cross, dying to self. The purpose of the cross, of course, was different in Jesus' life. The cross for Jesus was not for sanctification, but rather for our redemption. The cross for us is a point of sanctification, as we talked about last week. The message of the cross is that sanctification, is that focus on making us holy. But regardless of anyone who would say wherever they are, and regardless of whether it's Christ himself or us, there is a cross, a death that leads to life. So the question is, are we thinking of the cross as Jesus thought of the cross? The second thing that Jesus thought about was that Jesus thought about the Holy Spirit. The scripture is making it abundantly clear that we can't comprehend the message of the cross and certainly can't apply the message of the cross the lesson of the cross to our lives without the work of the Holy Spirit. So Jesus knew this. And all through his ministry, he's preparing the disciples and he's thinking about this. He's praying to the Father for the Holy Spirit to be sent. And listen to what he says to the disciples in John chapter 15, verse 26, going all the way into chapter 16, verse 15. He says, when the Advocate comes, who? When the Holy Spirit comes whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. And you also must testify, for you have been with me from the beginning. All this I have told you so that you will not fall away. Then they will pull you out of the synagogue. In fact, the time is coming when anyone who kills you will think they're offering a service to God. They will do such things because they have not known the Father or me. I have told you this so that when their time comes, you will remember that I warned you about them. I did not tell you this from the beginning because I was with you, but now I am going to him who sent me. None of you ask me, where are you going? Rather, you're filled with grief because I've said these things. But very truly, I tell you, it is for your good that I'm going away. Unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. When he comes... When the Holy Spirit comes, he will prove the world, he will convict the world to be in the wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. About sin because people do not believe in me. 
about righteousness because I'm going to the Father where you can see me no longer. And we talked about this in another time. And about judgment because the prince of this world now stands condemned. I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. But when he, the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears. And he will tell you what is yet to come. He will glorify me because it is from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said the Spirit will receive from me what he will make known to you. Jesus was thinking about the Holy Spirit. He was thinking about the disciples. He was praying for the Holy Spirit to come and to fill them here. The Holy Spirit to empower them. The Holy Spirit to tell them the truth. The Holy Spirit to remind them what he had taught them. Oh, he was thinking about the Holy Spirit. Jesus was eagerly desiring for us to be filled with the Holy Spirit. He was eagerly, uh, eagerly desiring for us to know him more fully through the Holy Spirit. So the question again is, are we thinking about the Holy Spirit as Jesus thought about the Holy Spirit? And then finally, Jesus thought about the people. Matthew chapter 9, verse 35 to chapter 10, verse 1. It says, Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them, because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Jesus called his 12 disciples to him and gave them authority to drive out impure spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. The goal here that Jesus had was not that they would just be healed of their sickness and disease, but that they would be sheep in the shepherd's care, that they would be sheep in his sheepfold, in his kingdom in his in his family and he is compassionate he is caring he is moved he is troubled when he sees the people even on the cross he's calling out for their forgiveness and for their well-being because Jesus had compassion for the people's sin and the, their condition he was compassionate, merciful, and kind to the fact that even they were rejecting him. They're rejecting him and he's being kind to them. He reached out with love to the condemned and to the outcasts of society. Question is, are we thinking about people as Jesus thought about people? You see, we respond and apply the word of God by having the mind of Christ. Being of the same mind toward one another is not because you think like me. I think this, you think like me, we're good. Or because I think like you. Christians will be of one mind and one accord when each of us thinks like Christ. Each of us considers everything as Christ would consider it. Typically for us, when we come to a point of disagreement between husbands and wives, parents and children, brothers and sisters right here, what do we typically do? 
We try to convince the other person that our way of thinking is correct. Or we threaten the other person in some way to fall in line with our thinking. Or we manipulate, coerce, deceive, or do something else in the flesh to get someone else to agree with us. As Christians, we should be asking, what would Jesus think about this? What can the Holy Spirit remind me of what he has said already about this matter? What Jesus has already said. What can the Holy Spirit remind me of that? When I start to think about what Jesus is thinking, I start to align my mind with the mind of Christ, with the Holy Spirit. I start to come into alignment or greater alignment with the Holy Spirit. When you start to think about what Christ is thinking, and you start to align yourself with his mind, you start to come into more and more alignment with the Holy Spirit. What's the result? You and I can be of the same mind, not because I convinced you and you convinced me, but because we came together in the Holy Spirit. Because we were much more closely aligned to what the Lord wanted. Will we be perfectly in aligned? Will we say everything exactly the same? Will we know and have that perfect perfection in Christ? No. I'm not expecting that. But we will be significantly better off than the alternative. Than being out here and arguing, yelling at each other from a great distance. I'm right. No, I'm right. You're wrong. No, you're wrong. Rather we say, oh Lord, how do I come to you? Not how do I convince them. How do I come to you? And when I come to you, I pray for my brother my sister to also come to you. And when they come to you, whether it's a problem that we're having in our marriage, whether it's my child who will not listen, whether it is some other situation that I'm going through, and I'm trying to be of the same mind with that person, oh Lord God, when we both come to you, there's going to be a change. Here's a practical application I want to challenge you with this, this week. For the rest of your life. The next time you have a conflict of any kind. With someone else. Or even with yourself. A conflicting thought in your mind. Should I do this? Should I not do this? I think I should do this. I, should, I don't think I should do that. Even a conflict in your own mind. When that conflict starts to arise. I want to ask you. And by the way, this is, I'm, I'm, I, I was going through this, I'm preparing this, and I'm thinking, I've got to start doing this myself. Right? I've got to stop. My tendency is to say, let me tell you why I'm right. I have to stop. And I want to challenge each of you to stop. And you say, what would Jesus think about this? What would Jesus think about this? What do I need to know about the mind of Christ right now? And tell your spouse, you know, that anger level is rising right up there. The words are increasing in volume. Right there. Say, ooh, let's stop. Let's pray. Let's ask God what Christ thinks about this. You may be surprised that it's none of what you think. Both of you may not be thinking as Christ thinks. 
Or you may be surprised that it is exactly what one person is thinking about. And you've got to be humble and yielded and say, oh, you know what? I see it. But if we don't do that, what's the alternative? We will stay stubbornly fixed in our own ways and fight and fight. We've got to come and have the mind of Christ. We've got to say, what would Jesus think about this? At the base of it all, at the foundation of it all, minimally, we can't go very far astray from the way, from the truth, from the life that God has ordained for us. If we will set our minds, if we will think about the cross, the Holy Spirit, and about people the way that Jesus would think about them. Heavenly Father, I thank you that, Lord, you are good to us and that your word is so powerful to us. I thank you, Lord, for this incredible truth that we have the mind of Christ, the Lord of the universe, creator of all things, Savior, Messiah. We have his mind. Lord, most often we are not even aware of it, and even if we're aware of it, we're certainly not availing ourselves of the fact that we have the mind of Christ, that the Holy Spirit that is in us is revealing to us the very mind of Christ. We don't have to be perturbed, confused, Lord, running from here to there, searching for answers. We simply have to say, what would Jesus think? What did he say? What did he think? And the word is filled with those examples of, Lord, how you dealt with problems, with grief, with sin, with, Lord, conflict. We have those examples. Let the Holy Spirit remind us of them. Let the Holy Spirit reveal it to us. Let the Holy Spirit show us where we have been seeking our own way rather than the way of the Lord. Let the Holy Spirit reveal to us that we have been relying on our own mind, influenced as it is by so many different things, and we have not been relying on the mind of Christ. Help us, Lord. Grant us grace. Grant us grace these days to ask that question, what would Jesus think? What is the mind of Christ on this? And help us to come into alignment with you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.